is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, there. somebody must be having new business cards printed. Yes, indeed. What is this new shadow department called then? It's one of those things that trips off the tongue. Go on. I'm the Shadow Secretary of State of Climate Change and Net Zero. DCCNZ. And in government, it will be the first department of Net Zero in the world, I believe. That's incredible. Yeah. That's exciting. And internally, are you calling that Ducknans? <laughs> yes, exactly. Trips off the tongue. In a way, it reminds me of my old days setting up the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Oh, my God, it's like the Beatles and Get Back. I mean, that's what people are comparing it to, actually. They reconnected by getting back to just playing live as a band like they used to. You're reconnecting with your roots, setting up whatever department. What was it? DOSAC, you just mentioned. Deck. Now... Do you notice anything different about me? Have you had a haircut? I have had a haircut. God, that's a lot of H's. Um, when you are in need of a, a haircut, does Justine make this known? Uh, yes. How does she phrase that information? You need a haircut. Okay, so she's straight down the line. Yeah, no, no messing. Okay. Why? Just Sarah can be quite brutal about it. What did she say? She, she told me that I looked like a nana from behind. My God. Her nana. Well, not her nana, rest in peace, but a, a generic nana, like my hair looked like nana hair. Do you know I had blonde curls when I was a child? Really? Little Goldilocks? I was doing these pictures for my mum, actually, and I found these old pictures of myself. I mean, honestly, I like had blonde curls. I, 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 yeah, I just find it very, very hard to believe that I had blonde curls, but I did. And then so gradually it became, stopped being curly, went brown, and then went black, and now went grey. Wow. Are you uh, are you excited about the return of Sex and the City? It's funny you should say that because it just crossed my path. There was a, some piece in The Guardian saying it was going to be better than the original and I hadn't really realised it was returning. Were you a fan the first time round? I was sort of a fan the first time round, well after the first time round, if you see what I mean. Right. Which of the four do you most closely relate to? Oh, I don't know, really. I see you as a Charlotte. I did once see Mr Big in a uh, cafe in New York. I got a picture in my mind's eye of the eggs <laughs> they were more memorable than the celebrity spotting well no i remember him it's it seems like you are moderately interested in that yeah um if if you were to reboot any show i mean we have to be realistic here you can't resurrect people who are no longer with us although i think the technology is coming what beloved show of your past would you most like to see rebooted but it's sort of something i'd really want to watch now is it yes yes you want to see how those same characters are getting on at this different stage in their life. I don't love the ageing process, so I, don't, I think I'd have to sort of... I think I'd want them to go back in time. Ah. Uh, Is that a you, sort of unreasonable you a, request? You want, a pre, you want a prequel? Yeah, I think so. You see, I thought you were going to say The West Wing. That's so funny because it went through my head, The West Wing. That was the first thing that popped into my head. So which of those characters would now have his... Or her own show on some kind of outspoken news channel? Well, I suppose Josh Lyman, you can imagine, as a sort of presenter on mm. MSNBC. Who's run for election themselves? Donna Moss. Great Maybe. answer. Great answer. Maybe. So do you see an on-screen clash between her and Josh? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what about President Bartlett? Would he be heading up the Department for Climate Change and Net Zero? Definitely. Now, 
Shall we talk about what we're talking about? I think you're going to tell us what we're talking about. Yes. It's the latest in our First They Ignore You series about how ideas turn into real-world progressive change. And this week, we're looking at racial equality. Now, of course, this is an ongoing struggle, as we've been reminded over the past couple of years by the Black Lives Matter movement and by the stark differences in the ways that the pandemic has affected different ethnic groups. And it's important that we acknowledge that off the bat, and we will get onto the challenges that are still ahead of us. But we're going to explore the story of the change that has happened in the UK over the past century, where it seems like we have travelled a considerable distance in terms of attitudes towards overt racism, on legal protections, on the need for representation and visibility. And we have brilliant guests for this conversation. Campaigner and historian Patrick Vernon, the creator of the 100 Great Black Britons campaign, which is now a book too. We have Sunder Katwala from British Future, a think tank working on integration and immigration, identity and race. And Sunder is such a clear thinker and a great communicator on this subject. And he's done a lot of work on attitudes, what shifts them and how much they have or haven't changed. And then as a postscript to this, Ed, you were able to grab 10 minutes on the phone with Diane Abbott, whose own story of being elected to Parliament is part of this history. And you're going to get a few recollections and reflections from her. It should be another really good episode. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, look, I am a terrible present giver in terms of delaying everything to the last minute. But I have actually sort of defied the stereotype this year. And what I've done is... I've done a family calendar. You know, one of those family calendars with pictures of us. Well, pictures of me, actually. No, pictures of us for Justine, who doesn't listen to the podcast, so there's no dangers here. Um, Justine's parents, who don't listen to the podcast, so there's no dangers there. And for my mum. Were you not tempted to do Justine a special calendar of you in your swimming gear? No. That's going to be RTBC merch. <laughs> Maybe this is for my after my sort of retirement from politics. We'll do a sort of special one with me. We can do the one in the Icelandic pool, me in my swimming gear. Like when they decommissioned top secret documents years later. Yeah. What's your reason to be cheerful? Going back to karaoke, Ed. Going tonight, me and Sarah, just the two of wow. us. She's going to play Can't Start the Fire. I didn't start the fire. We didn't start the fire, sorry. <laughs> Bloody hell, Ed, can you try and be a bit clearer on who did or didn't start the fire by the next time we go to karaoke? I'll try my best. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Joining us for this conversation, we have social commentator, campaigner and cultural historian Patrick Vernon. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Recent Vogue cover star as well? So I've been told. Yeah, yeah. It was an experience, that's all I can say. <laughs> you mean you didn't go to your local news agent and, and buy a dozen copies then? I bought one for my parents and I've got one. I've got to spend one on my bookshelf somewhere, yeah. I don't think that's something that you or I can say, is it, Jeff? Not yet. Patrick was one of 20 activists ready to change the world. And, um, and also Patrick is behind the 100 Great Black Britons campaign, which I'm sure you'll know about. So uh, that's Patrick. Also, we're delighted to welcome back 
to the podcast, Sunder Katwala, who is the man behind, I think, possibly my favourite Twitter account, also director of the identity and integration think tank British Future. Well, what? Sorry, why? Why is he your favourite Twitter account rather than me? You, you, you're less sassy than you used to be. You used to be very sassy. Oh, God. Since you've gone into that shadow cabinet, you're, you're less of a sass mouth. You're just devastating, Jeff. He just, he's just like devastating every week, you know what I mean? So, um, Patrick, if I, I could just start with you. Through things uh, like the, the campaigns that you've run and the work that you've done, I feel that we know so much more than when either Ed or I were at school learning history about the many black and minority ethnic figures in British history. But in, in terms of what we're talking about today and the change really we saw in the 20th century, when did race become part of the public discourse? I've come to the conclusion that every 20, 30 years we have these moments of epiphany or, or epoch moments where everyone talks about race. Right now, because of what happened, uh, Black Lives Matter murder George Floyd, we're having these big, big conversations in different spaces about race, inclusion, equity. But I can remember we had the same conversations around the murder of Stephen Lawrence. We had these big conversations in Britain about equality, fairness, tackling racism, etc. And then one of my favourite kind of heroes, uh, who she passed away over a year ago, Dame Jocelyn Barrow, she was telling me about the big conversations that were having about race in the early 60s. Uh, and she was part of that group of people, young activists at the time, that created an organisation called the Campaign Against Racial Discrimination, which played a key role in lobbying for the first Race Relations Act in 1965. I mean, if you even go back further, Harold Moody, a GP in Peckham. Yes, so, th- so this is what I specifically wanted to ask you about. He, he was a really significant name that I hadn't come across before in, in the 1930s. So tell us, tell us a bit about him and the circumstances post-First World War. He was born in Jamaica at the turn of the last century, came to Britain to train as a, as a doctor. So he was around during the pre-NHS, so we're talking about interwar years, the late 20s. Uh, he couldn't get a job uh, in the pre-NHS working in the asylums or the old type hospitals that we know so eventually he became a general practitioner he set up his practice in his home uh, in Peckham and then he got involved initially fighting for the rights of seamen a lot of seamen who have come from Africa and Caribbean uh, and Southeast Asia were discriminated in terms of accommodation uh, unfair wages so he played a key role campaigning for them. And he kept in contact with lots of uh, what's happened in America so the, you know we have this interesting black atlantic relationship with our cousins in america so he was engaging with uh, w.e dubois and others uh, and the, those were involved in the national association against colored peoples ANACPP, and he decided to have a vision to create a similar organization in the uk uh, so just imagine britain in interwar years i mean often it's glamorized around art deco jazz music all that kind of stuff but obviously there's fascism uh, that was happening, obviously, was happening in, it's, uh, in Italy with Mussolini, obviously with Hitler and uh, Germany, and obviously what was happening in Britain with Oswald Mosley and, the, and uh, the black shirts and that battle on Cable Street. So Harold Moody had this vision of having an organisation that reflected black and brown people fighting for racial equality. What was life like for them in terms of their status compared to the white people in the community? How were they, how were they legally treated differently? 
I mean, obviously, there, there has been a long black presence in Britain. And if you look at places like in um, Butte Town and Cardiff, if you look at uh, Liverpool and other places, there has been a long connection of the black community. People were living in not fantastic housing conditions. Yes, they were working, uh, but... When we talk about today, we talk about ethnicity pay gap, but I think it was more of ethnicity ocean around wages. But yet people saw themselves as British, whether they were born in Britain or they came to Britain to have a better life. Everyone saw Britain as the mother country. There's been this conversation around identity and citizenship for a very long time. Sunder, at the risk of asking a question I might not necessarily enjoy the answer to. You've done a lot of work on how attitudes have changed in the UK over the years. So what would my white grandparents or great-grandparents typically have been like in terms of their attitudes towards the communities that Patrick's been talking about? Like, would, would they feel that they shared their sense of British identity with those people who'd come from other parts of the empire? The white British population didn't have that sense. And this is the fascinating thing, I think, about the black British story. I think particularly the black Caribbean migrants of the Windrush generation, there's never been a group of migrants in the history of the world who were so certain of their status, their identity, their rights as the passengers on the Windrush, a third of whom have served in the RAF as they're coming back to Britain. And they know everything about the official story of Britain and their British identity and British history and British culture. There's no question of their integration and their identity. So what a shock it is for them to arrive in Tilbury and London and to find out that the story that's been taught in their classrooms is not known in the mother country to the white British. And that that starts a two or three generation story. And even 60 years later, you've got the British state still not recognising the claim to Britishness that they were so clear about. But the white British population also felt they were fair. You know, in a lot of the research at the time, you know, the neighbours wouldn't like it, but I've got no problem. There's some fascinating research in David Olasuga's book, his histories of Black Britain, that in the in the Second World War, when the Americans tried to impose strict segregation in the pubs and cafes in Middle England and rural England, people aren't having it. They're not having that treatment of the black GI. So there's this sort of liberal tolerance idea combined with a level of social distance. You think you're part of us. You're not like us. I don't know. Why are you here? Um, To which the answer is, you know, (laughs) if you knew your history, you'd know why we're here. We were here. We're here because you were there and so on. So it's a it's a it's a new story. It's a new encounter. But the black British migrants know that story and the and the white British don't know. My dad comes on a plane to England from India as a doctor a week after Enoch Powell has given the Rivers of Blood speech that clearly hasn't got reported in Gujarat in the way that it, that it might. And he's coming to join a million Commonwealth migrants already here with a right to be here um, under the law and an argument about whether they should all be sent back. What's interesting to me is that you know, we're 75 years into this story, the post-Windrush story of multi-ethnic Britain being a settled fact. But for the first four decades, the Patrick has uncovered the stories, but the black and Asian Britons have no public voice whatsoever. 
in the conversation until the mid-late 80s. There's a voice in civic society from the late 60s. You get your running me trusts and your joint council of welfare of immigrants start to give a platform, start to give a voice. But actually, we have this progressive change, this progressive legislation, the Race Relations Act, in an all-white parliament that's staying all-white for another 20 years. And so the reason to be cheerful about race in Britain in my lifetime, we've been winning the arguments for race equality and against racism because the voice and power and profile of black, Asian and mixed race people in Britain in the 2020s has never been higher. And if part of what we're trying to do here is understand how Britain changed to be able to hear and engage with those arguments, and we see legislation on race relations in the 60s and 70s, I think 1968 is perhaps the key moment... Um, it was actually amendments to the original Race Relations Act, but it, it was the one that prompted Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. What are the events along the way that changed the country to a point where race is on the political agenda? Is the Second World War a factor? Is it after that? In 1948, there's the Citizenship Act, which confers an equal British status to everyone living in the British Empire, whether they're here or overseas. What, what are the milestones? What happens is that Britain tells itself a story in 1948. We are an open cosmopolitan empire and commonwealth. Therefore, in principle, you're all welcome. And then the question is, will people be welcome if they actually take up that right? And it's quite a complicated story then. Um, and in 1968, you're having that clash between the story Britain tells itself, the reality of racism and discrimination, and quite a polarised act where you know Enoch Powell is, is stigmatised by Edward Heath in the Conservative Party, but he's carrying a lot of opinion with the answer is to send them all back before they have children here, um, and then it will be too late. And the Labour Party, because it is the Progressive Party, under a lot of pressure on these issues, as it so often is, decides that it has to at least pass an act that says you cannot discriminate. In certain ways, these are relatively soft acts, but they, they establish that principle um, of, of fairness. And, you know, we have a clash and an argument about that. The facts change once people like me are born in this country. So Enoch's right that it's it's the end of his vision if Sunder Katwala is born here because there's nowhere to send him back to. My parents are from India and Ireland, so it's going to get a bit complicated. So I always thought there's something very interesting in the generational shift between the first generation who used to say, metaphorically, maybe literally, you keep a suitcase packed just in case. And the British-born generation, we never felt that, that you were going to send us back. So I always loved that Lenny Henry joke when he said, you know, Enoch Powell wants to give us a £1,000 to go home, but it's only 50p on the bus <laughs> to Dudley. And he's saying it in a thick <laughs> West Midlands accent. And so the standing and status in that debate between the Monday Club and the repatriation agenda and the British-born British people who are here, we've got a status where, you know, the British-born children are going to win the argument. There's still a, a challenge between, you know, my in-laws in Billericay in Essex, who, you know, if my father-in-law's in his 70s, he's seen his country change quite fast in his lifetime. You know, we've gone from the ethnic minority presence being a 20th of the population to a sixth of the population since the early 1990s. That's quite felt quite fast to him. But to young black Britain, young Asian Britain, it's also felt quite slow about how fast this story of equal opportunities is going to actually be realised. People who are younger than me and didn't feel that change in the 80s and 90s because they've been born in this century. They don't want to hear about not being beaten up by the National Front or not hearing bananas 
chanting at Goodison Park. They want an equal chance for a job when they apply for a job, because if you're black and Asian British, you're more likely to have a university degree than if you're white British. So we've seen an extraordinary amount of change, and the change hasn't been fast enough for the rising expectations that are coming up from the group that are the beneficiaries of the changes we've made so far. Can we just talk, maybe, Patrick, with you about the changes we saw in the 1950s and 60s? What are the social and and, and other movements that produced the change in an all-white parliament? I think we have to recognise that international events and activities shape Britain. So it's no coincidence that um, the 1965 Act was around the same time at the height of the civil rights movement in America. And uh, the story that Martin Luther King actually was, uh, was about 1964, was going to Oslo to pick up his Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, he did a stopover in London for about three, four days. And in a, in a hotel in Bloomsbury, uh, there were a number of black, Asian and white activists and campaigners. They, they met Martin Luther King. He told uh, his vision of his campaigning work, non-violence, how he influenced the Kennedys and all that kind of stuff. And they were so um, impressed and empowered by his vision that led to the creation of the campaign against racial discrimination. So I think what was happening internationally had impact. It's also at the same time as apartheid was being shaped up in that period, basically. You know, and also we have to recognise there was a growing movement of independence, um, particularly in Africa, even though there was, a, there was a juxtaposition. I mean, ironically, I grew up in Wolverhampton. Actually, Enoch Powell opened my junior school, and I was there, so I've still got the scars. That's in the story. Do you remember it happening? I do, actually, but I didn't know it was him. Right. I didn't know it was him because, and, and ironically, um, when it came to his 50th, 50th anniversary of his speech a couple of years ago, Central TV contacted me. They invited some myself, um, former school teachers. We went back to the old junior school, and we and there was this, there's this photo album which I never saw. And what was interesting, the, the school was 70% black and Asian children. You know, he did his speech of Rivers of Blood. The school's opened in November 1968. Uh, he made his speech in February or March 1968. And one of one elements of his speech, which I think is quite important today, um, he talked about that black and Asian children would bring down the educational standards of white children. And there was a degree of white flight. So what happened was, um, and I didn't know this until I found out afterwards, uh, I was bussed around Wolverhampton, me and my sister, were, because, they, you know, because they couldn't have too many black and Asian children uh, in classrooms. They had to build more schools. So this school I went to, 70% black and Asian. Enoch, made a, Enoch Powell made a speech uh, about this school, that this was an immigrant school. How dare you call this the immigrant school? We're black and British, we're Asian and British, but we're classed as immigrants, which means that we're second-class citizens. So this is the kind of thing that we were grappling with. What is the difference, do you think, that is at play between yours and your parents' generations? It seems like they were almost resigned to prejudice as immigrants to this country that you weren't going to put up with as someone born here. Uh, it's an interesting question. If you looked at the Winners generation and, looked at, and I look at my parents, they accepted a lot of stuff, a lot of crap, to be quite honest. But the reason why they accepted a lot of crap because they were new to Britain and their focus was raising a family and working. My parents hardly talked about 
any experience of racism discrimination they they had. We knew there was something as children, but we, they never talked about it. I mean, I talk about it now in their in, in their twilight years. They're happy to share these experiences, but when we were growing up, they never did. And I think like my generation, other generations, we said, oh, hold on, we're not going to take this because we're British. And I think that's a difference. So I wouldn't class it as a generational divide. I'd class it as that we had a sense, a clear sense of entitlement. I wonder whether, Sunday, you could talk about your own experiences too. I read a piece you wrote in Prospector about the racism you heard when you were at Everton, for example, when you were growing up. And I mean, no, that's just one snapshot of what you faced as, as a young person. Yeah, I think I think my generation was relatively lucky, but I was quite a naive seven-year-old and my fellow Everton supporters were chanting Everton are white, throwing bananas. Everton are white was something Liverpool should be jealous of. Um, and there was a level of overt racism there that was, you know, just part of what, what was there. And so it really amazed me when, the, you know, there's an incident of racism now, which there should never be. Against Reading Stoning, it's being analysed on Match of the Day. Um, uh, and, I, and we're all condemning it. We've had a very long episode of Match of the Day when I started going to football. But we, we changed the culture of our football stadiums very profoundly between the late 80s and the early 90s. By 1994, by 1996, that had gone. It had been policed out, but actually the culture had shifted and people had understood it. So that, that great West Brom team of the late 70s, I've always felt they did more for the debate about racism, very much you know, in Smethwick and around where Enoch Powell's messages were landing. They made people think and see about racism and anti-racism in a completely different way. I think they did more for anti-racism than the Commission of Racial Equality did in that in that generation because it was how we had the public argument. So I felt incredibly confident by the mid-90s that, you know, three lines on your shirt and the aspirations, this new inclusive sense, because because the racism had stopped. If you speak about racism or race in this country, even in the most moderate bridging way that British Future does... And you celebrate shared remembrance. You are one click away from every bigger in Britain. And there are there is a, a lack of policing. What we policed out of Goodison Park Football Stadium and we we challenge if we see it on the bus or the train or in the street. What is no longer acceptable in our playgrounds is not policed by the police or the platform. So yeah, I literally had the experience of being attacked by swarms of Nazis set off by the uh, deputy leader of Patriotic Alternative actually, because of research showing that 90% of people don't think you have to be white to be English anymore. Because I was talking about the progress, about racism, the 1% of people who were, you know, virulently, genocidally angry about that are all one click away from me. I shouldn't have an unequal experience of taking part in a public conversation because I want to say very sensible and moderate things about anti-racism and fairness. You're very visibly aware that the journey isn't over yet. So are those bits of Twitter a bit like some awful pub in the 80s or 90s that's full of white nationalists, but it's not happening in an upstairs room with drawn curtains? It's outward-facing and, and therefore disproportionately amplified. Yeah, I mean, th- those pubs are slightly faded away. They didn't; Those racists didn't particularly succeed in recruiting as many of their children and grandchildren as they would have hoped. But on Twitter, you've got both these milieus of people who are encouraging and egging people on and therefore have the sense that more people agree. You've got an unequal experience of your own society. So, you know, we've got to re-win arguments that I really did feel we'd won in the early 90s in this new sphere of public life. And if we don't do it, actually... It's a tragedy if the generation with the strongest anti-racism norms we've ever seen 
feel pessimistic. We've got to remake the progress in this new sphere that we made elsewhere in the last generation. Patrick, I think we came into this thinking that these Racial Relations Acts in 65 and 68 and 76 were going to be in some way pivotal. Now, I'm not saying they're not important, but when I hear both you and Sunder talk about all these other factors, I wonder if they're less instrumental than we might have thought. What what were those acts and how important were they? Well, I mean, the 65 and 68 Act, they made small incremental changes. They recognised the colour bar and discrimination uh, in employment and housing. But in the 1965 Act, there was no real enforcement mechanisms. There was a bit more in the 1968 Act. I think the 1976 Act was probably the legislation which had the most powers. And also, more importantly, um, there was a network of race equality organisations that was kind of established on the 1968 Act. But I think the 1976 Act gave more resources to have locally-based community relations councils working in partnerships. Some of them were funded by local authorities, uh, and most of them actually did a lot of work on the ground um, in terms of local campaigns and doing lots of educational anti-racist work. So I think that's quite important. But I think the key thing, the law and the legislation and the resources is one thing. It's public attitudes and mass movements, like the campaign Rock Against Racism, just explain to people what that was, Patrick, because lots of our listeners won't remember it. Okay, so Rock Against Racism was established because in Birmingham, Eric Clapton basically said, keep Britain white. Now, Eric Clapton's, you know, one of the top musicians in the country. And a number of musicians and artists were so were so appalled and flabbergasted that Rock Against Racism was established um, and what was powerful about Rock Against Race, Racism, uh, which started in sort of the mid-70s, it brought together different music genres and engaging with young people and creating kind of a, a social media mass movement activity around tackling anti-racism. I think it was just as important as legislation and having race quality officers in local authorities or community relations councils um, as well. Of course, we're not going to cover every significant chapter in this story in the space of this conversation, and there are so many incidents that move things along. But I wondered if we could talk about one of the most significant events in modern history, the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the subsequent campaign for justice led by his mother, Doreen, and his father, Neville. Stephen Lawrence is exactly the same age as me. He was born British in a hospital in Greenwich in 1974. And he's murdered because of the colour of his skin, because he's worried about getting home too late for his curfew, trying to catch a bus from Elton to Plumstead. So that very profoundly sort of challenged my sense, you know, when he was killed. And this is incredibly important for the whole country. It was Britain's George Floyd moment, very much so, I think, a generation earlier. But it's really interesting when you then look into how that happened. It took four years or six years for the country to wake up to what had happened and what it meant. And so the way that the change happened between his murder in 1993, the campaign for justice in 97, and the McPherson report in 99 is fascinating, I think. I thought about him absolutely every day in the year of that inquiry. I happened to be, just by coincidence, circumstances, I was living on the El- on the Wellhall Road in Eltham when the McPherson Road report came out, not a dozen yards from the memorial pack where he was killed. It's one of the most mundane and boring roads 
you could work up and yet you've got that, you know, you see in the documentaries on the stage and film just that blur of hatred um, that kills him because of who he is. So what Doreen Lawrence achieved is profoundly important. But why change happened was the breadth of coalition that was built around that injustice. You had activists on anti-racism. You had radical lawyers making a case. You had Nelson Mandela coming in saying you need to look at this, finally getting it on the agenda. You had a new Labour Home Secretary in Jack Straw, quite tough on crime and justice and therefore tough on this saying something's happened here, we need to look at this, we need to open this up. And you had the Daily Mail looking at that issue and saying we see in this an injustice uh, and the treatment. And because of the role of the Daily Mail and that murderous headline and the pressure and the coalition that that brought right across it, Middle England looked at stories that were very familiar to Black Britain since 1981 and over the 20 years since they saw that story for the first time through the eyes of a black parent and a black family and they recognized the story of justice and injustice and you know Lord McPherson's establishment of figure as you can find you know looked into it and thought about it and said we now see how discrimination happens it's the racist that murdered the teenager but it's also the unwitting unconscious biases and discrimination of the police on the scene of the way the report happens the failure is institutional for that reason so you have a new conversation about racism that all of England is tuned into and wants to know the outcome to so it's a profoundly important moment we can have a debate how much does that change sustain how much the police change how much the other institutions change but it it's it it catches us late in the century in realizing there's been progress, but actually the challenge that injustice is an everyday experience in criminal justice, if you're black, is suddenly widely accepted across society. We had to wait until the murder of Stephen Lawrence to have a big conversation around structural racism, institutional racism. All the conversation we had was racism in terms of interpersonal racism or a racism against a particular body or organisation. Now we're having a conversation about structural racism, about the society as a whole, and where do organisations and institutions fit in, the, in society and interactions as well. And I think that's quite important. And that's a conversation that we're still having now as a result of Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's a really very, very good history. Let's just sort of briefly touch on the parliamentary aspect of this. Because in 1987, Bernie Grant, Paul Boateng, Diane Abbott and Keith Vaz are elected to Parliament. Uh, the first uh, black and minority ethnic MPs to be elected for, am I right in thinking, 70 years. And, you know, Parliament still doesn't look like the society as a whole, but it has moved forward. Talk to us about this issue of representation. To go from that to a tenth of the Parliament, 65 MPs, there was no Asian woman ever elected to our Parliament until the 2010 general election. We forget that now because there are Asian women in high positions on, on both sides. There had two black women in the entire 20th century. So that acceleration, especially people assumed that you know men would speak for ethnic minority communities and women would never have a voice. You look at the number of women from black and Asian backgrounds in politics. That's incredibly important. It changes the agenda. And then the great achievement, I think, in the Cameron era is that, is that this becomes a cross-party norm. And we'll get choppier race politics. We'll have black conservatives and black left-wingers and black centrists and Asian right-wingers and Asian left-wingers. Only Britain and Canada have actually done that, where 
ethnic diversity is normal in politics. It's normal in the media. It's normal in the business. It's not like, oh, you're here. That's very interesting. In all of the European countries, it's just a, you know, there's a tiny bit of presence. And therefore, people have the burden of representation to speak for whole communities wherever they've been elected for because people have been waiting for that voice for so long. So there's a big shift in what's going on. You've both talked about the progress made, but we clearly have a long way to go. And it'd be interesting to see where you would identify, what you would identify as the key areas where we need to make further progress. What's interesting, and just uh, kind of reflects on what Sunna just said, uh, yeah, we had this moment of epiphany around the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And then all of a sudden, everyone's saying, we want to tackle racism. And then within about three years, people got bored of it, moved on. And then we had Grenfell, then obviously the Windrush scandal. But actually, ironically, it was an international intervention, murder of George Floyd, which has brought us back again to the conversation we were exactly having at the time of murder of Stephen Lawrence. But what's also interesting is the role of government in this. And it's been like this since 2010. We have a government that doesn't really want to tackle issues around race. I mean, Theresa May, for all her faults, tried to do something on this when she launched the Race Disparity Unit. That was because of the UN report, which was the damning report that there is no race quality strategy, that Britain's going backwards. But actually, that was a short intervention. And what's happened is we're now in this kind of cultural wars. It's reached that point during the removal of Colston statue in Bristol. But this war's been happening bit by bit. And I think that this current government, under different guises, have try to undermine particularly race quality legislation, have taken away some of the parameters and tools around data collection, around analysis. So it makes it difficult to make the case for change. And even when they do decide to do a case for change, they want to say that Britain is, uh, is a fantastic country around multiculturalism and actually we should be exporting it whilst at the same time there is a growing movement of people now realise actually we need to do, if we want Britain to be an inclusive society, a society where it's not simply just based on meritocracy and talent, but we want to tackle issues around fairness, structural discrimination and all the isms that go with that, we need to, do, we need to have a different conversation. But yet, it's about political leadership. If the political leadership is saying we don't want to have this conversation because we don't either we don't care or we don't think it's relevant, they're deliberately putting stuff in the way to, to prevent conversations. I mean, what's interesting is actually the more conversations on race equality in a corporate world than central government, which is amazing. So I think we're in this very interesting period in time where uh, there's no leadership from central government about having a dialogue, a mature conversation around race, equality. And at the same time, people are saying at at grassroots level, community level, we need to kind of do stuff in our own communities, in our own neighbourhoods, to be a better society in the absence of political support or leadership. Why I'm more optimistic than my friend Patrick about this and see it a bit differently, I think we've got to cut through the culture war. And I think think we've got a chance to do it. But were the polarisers unites or divides will depend on political leadership. It will depend on the political leadership of the right. It will depend on the political leadership of the progressives. And we're having too polarised a debate about race. We saw it around the Sewell Review because two true points seem to be incompatible. The left seems to struggle to say we made progress, yet 
the left built the progress, the left passed the legislation, the left had the social movements, and the right struggles to say there's more still to do. And it's evidently the case that both of these points are correct. We've made progress, but there's a lot more to do. The changes we need are that every institution in Britain needs to be more confident talking and navigating race and fairness in our country because the issue staying up this time is not just going to be flashpoints. It's a sixth of the population now. It will be a fifth. It will be a quarter. It's coming. So there's an expectation that change will speed up and institutions are going to have to see that change speed up. The irony that comes out of our research on this is that we increasingly can't agree on how to talk about race. There's a new language on the left and in the social movements and in the universities and a different language in the middle and a different language on the right. If you say, can we agree on what we could do about it? There's a much bigger consensus. Teach the full history in schools, including the complexities and the controversies of empire and slavery. Get the racism off social media. Monitor the CVs that come in and the results that they get so you get a fair chance to get a job. See the diversity of Britain reflected at the top table in the middle in every institution. We actually agree on the fundamentals of what we need to do and we're stuck in an argument about the new language and the old language of race. So I think talk is good, but action is where you unlock a consensus. Yorkshire Cricket Club is no secret. They've been having this argument about racism every five or ten years in the 80s, the 90s, etc. This year they've decided, I mean, the governance of cricket fell over because of something that's always been happening. Um, so the expectations are higher. Azim Rafiq spoke out because he was inspired by Black Lives Matter. What really interested me, it was the sponsors at Yorkshire Cricket Club who said, we're coming out if you don't sort this out. And the sponsors weren't just Nike, they were Yorkshire Tea and Tetley's Beer and Harrogate Spring Water. And they said, we're going to act on racism. They would not have said that before the summer of 2020. And suddenly the English Cricket Board that has been avoiding this issue for a couple of years is saying, you know, we can't put up with it either. And so we've got a universal political consensus now. There is institutional racism in Britain at Yorkshire County Cricket Club. Um, you know, it would be odd if that was the only institution that needs to change. Every institution has got work to do on fairness. So if we can get to the practical, broad agenda for change and fair chances, there's a consensus to unlock that progressives can unlock. I think adopting some of the language that's coming from America, even if we use that moment to get the salience and to get the attention, the language of white privilege just starts a debate about race versus class. Everybody who's black and Asian thinks you deal with race and class disadvantage together. So if you want to build your coalitions for change, let's have more action and not so much argument about how to talk about it. Uh, can I add, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pessimist, uh, actually. I'm an optimist. I was just giving the context of the question, but there are things happening which are really positive. I mean, I'll give a good example. Only this morning, I was invited to a school in Edmonton, Kingfisher Primary School. They reached out to me because uh, these 10-year-olds in two classes in this school have run, written a letter to Priti Patel saying... We want justice for the winner's generation. As 10-year-olds, they saw a sense of injustice and they've written to, to the Prime Minister. That gave me a real positive sense of hope. Well, look, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation. Um, we're grateful, so grateful to both of you, Patrick Vernon and Sundar Katwala. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To follow up that conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Diane Abbott, MP, who we talked about uh, in that interview, who was, of course, elected to Parliament in 1987. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Talk to us a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, at a personal level about that election in 1987, because it was obviously a historic moment. Talk to us maybe about the, if you would, about the challenge of getting selected and of getting elected and of what you sort of went through, really. Well, um, getting elected was a challenge. And what I did was I deselected a sitting MP and he was beside himself with rage. He was a man called Ernie Roberts and he just couldn't believe he'd been deselected by this young black woman. And the regional office at the time, they said to me afterwards, they're a bit stupefied. And they said to me, if we'd known this would happen, we'd have done something. God knows what by that. Um, and the other thing, of course, was that a lot of people didn't think I could win. A lot of black, black people even thought I couldn't win because there'd never been a black female MP before. So it felt quite astonishing. It took me sort of time to take it in. I mean, I can't say the Labour Party was thrilled to bits at having four black MPs um, selected. And you would have thought that having the first four black MPs selected and then elected to Parliament would have, would have been a source of great pride to the Labour Party, but it wasn't. I think they felt we were an embarrassment, but um, that was the politics of race in those days. And when you then arrived in Parliament with uh, Bernie, Paul and Keith, what, what, what was it like? Well, I mean, Parliament... It's first of all very monolithic, very ancient. Well, very white very, at that point. And very white, yes. Yeah. Very white and really very male. Um, so it was quite extraordinary. I'd never been in an institution that was that ancient and that white before. Um, and friends would come to see me and they'd be completely astonished at the environment. And we've been discussing what has led to the change that we've seen and obviously parliament still doesn't look like the the, the country but it it looks more like the country than it did what do you think the impact has been of parliament changing of parliament changing its representation well i think parliament changing its representation has been important to the society as a whole actually because it's been part of a changing society. I won't go as far as to set an example, but it showed what was possible to other all-white institutions. And also having black people as MPs on the television, in the newspapers, it kind of sort of 
began to transform people's understanding of black people's role in the society. Talk to us about the progress you have seen in that time since you were elected, just taking that timescale of 1987 today. How would you sum up the progress that has been made before we get onto the progress that hasn't been made? Well, in some ways, I think the progress has been incremental. Um, clearly, you've got more black and brown MPs now. I mean, in 87, there were just four of us, and there's a lot more now. But in terms of how black people are treated in this society, in terms of institutional racism, not just in politics, but in policing and all sorts of walks of life, sadly, it hasn't changed as much as I thought it would change when I was first elected in 1987. That's really interesting. What If you were talking to the Diane Abbott who was elected in 1987, what would the, what would the biggest gains you'd point to be? Well, I suppose I would point to the increased numbers of black and brown people in all the professions, really, law, medicine, academia, which you didn't see in 87. I suppose that's what I would point to as the most obvious gain. And, and I know this is, a very, again, a very broad question, but where are the battles still unwon? Well, I mean, one of the big issues when I first entered Parliament was policing and stop and search and the way young black men were treated by the criminal justice system. And sadly, that, that hasn't got much better. I think that it's, it's good to have black and brown people in parliament, but it'd be good to see black and brown people in business and industry. Although, you know, some are coming through, um, it would be good to see more of a black and brown presence in every profession really and although you see a little more than you did in 1987 I still think there's progress to be made and the economic injustice oh well the economic injustice is still um appalling really and um and it's the fact that black people remain mostly at the bottom of the ladder that feeds into issues about health I mean, for instance, we're in the middle of a big crisis around COVID and black people are more likely to be infected and die from COVID. And that's not a genetic thing, actually. That's to do with our relative poverty. And if you were going back to 1987, you said very candidly that less progress has been made than you would have hoped for. What, what, if it's not an ignorant question, why? Why is that? Well, because... The people are very resistant to change and no one gives up power willingly. So there's no reason to expect that white people should embrace change or give up power willingly. I mean, people will pay lip service to it. But as I say, it's still the case that in very many professions, law, medicine, academia, at the top, at the top, it looks very white. We were talking earlier with Sundar about the fact that he remembers as a child going to Everton and hearing racist chants and then feeling like that had gone away. But then on Twitter, he now regularly gets racist abuse. It's been well documented how much racist abuse you have received on social media. Is your reflection similar to his in the sense of it was something you remembered from the 80s, you felt like 
before the advent of social media? Or were, were you, has it sort of been continuous? Well, because I'm not a football fan, I never went to football matches and heard that sort of abuse. And in a way, um, I was shielded from some of the abuse that you might get on the street as a young woman. But there's no doubt now that the amount of abuse you get online is just horrific. So in some ways, racist abuse has become more obvious and seems to have increased in volume. I mean, the thing about online, it's like an echo chamber, but there's no doubt that if I had had the amount of racist abuse when I was just starting out in politics that I have now, I wouldn't, I would have been too upset and frightened to go forward in politics, only because, you know, I'm a grown woman, I've been an MP for over 30 years, that I can sort of tough out the level of racist abuse. But as a young woman in my 20s, I wouldn't have gone forward in politics. And I notice as well that young people, young black people that come and work for me as interns, they're quite shocked by what they see. And we have to encourage them to think that politics might be something for them. The title of this podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. And you've given a very clear account of where progress has been made, but where the many places it hasn't been made. What keeps you going in this struggle and what what is a sort of reason to be cheerful? Well, the reason to be cheerful is that you can help bring other people up the ladder. I mean, I had a young woman work for me for 10 years, Belle Rivera Addy, and Belle is now a member of parliament herself. And when that sort of thing's happened, when you can see young people that you've encouraged and mentored moving forward, that makes it all worthwhile. And that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't broken through the glass ceiling in 1987. Well, that's right. And there are a number of young black women now in Parliament. And as you say, I had to break the glass ceiling in 1987. But, you know, seeing um, young black people coming forward makes it all worthwhile. Well, look, it's been great to talk to you, Diane Abbott. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So what did you think? Firstly, I just just enjoyed giving air to that conversation and listening. There's an importance in that. And then I think we've been really clear that we are not Pollyanna-ish on this subject and that there's so much further to go. But just on our central theme of these episodes, which is how change becomes reality... One thing that I am really encouraged by is how much this has come from people, from black and minority ethnic communities making themselves heard and standing for where their place should be in our society. And and it's not come from Parliament. If you think about the other episodes we've done in week one, this idea of universal healthcare was around for a long time, but it needed a government to introduce the NHS. Last week, we heard about childcare and and, uh, parental leave in the Nordic region, but they needed those social democratic parties in power to to make that happen. Whereas with this, yes, there have been the Race Relations Acts, but from talking to Patrick, it feels that the the framework and mechanisms of that were useful, but the, the sort of ancillary rather than central to the progress that's been made, which has come from people. That's a really interesting point. I mean, I, you know, I think it, it bears sort of um, highlighting and underlining, you know, I suppose what struck me about the Sunder Patrick conversation is just the appalling everyday racism 
he and Patrick would have faced, you know, growing up. And then a sense that that, you know, I thought what Sunda said about football was really striking and about the way things have... That is a really interesting emblem of change. And then at the same time, and I know this is a complicated point, Sunda is saying, but actually on social media, he faces a lot of really awful racism. I mean, and, and Diane, obviously, too. The other thing I'd say is it goes to the sort of first point you've made, which is in all of these progressive advances, and it's particularly true in this case, you have progress, but you still have miles and miles and miles to go. <laughs> and that is, and, and, you know, that is, on this issue in particular, is so, I think that is really, really striking. And, and I think our different guests would offer a different kind of uh, slightly different perspectives on, on, on the different elements of progress, but also uh, the, the kind of awful, well, enormous and, and awful in, in, in certain cases, challenges that are still faced in the, in the fight for, for race equality. But I think that, that I'm also struck by your point, which is, and, and Sunder made this point, I think, very powerfully, which is, generational change has has produced change and i think i think that is a sort of reason a reason for optimism send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast well we're in the outro what's your view on christmas tree oh, we've got ours already actually. when did it go up uh last weekend in in november Impressive, eh? Does that feel like a new thing to you? It's sort of getting ahead of the game. It's what I said to you earlier. Is Gene excited for Christmas? He's really excited. I always try and see as many Christmassy films at the pictures as I can in December, and I'll be dragging him, I'm sure, to a Muppet Christmas Carol a bit closer to Christmas. How about Daniel and Samuel? Uh, We've actually got them uh, rollerblades. Oh! I think you should get some as well, and Justine, and you could stage uh, a Miliband family production of Starlight Express. I mean, honestly, it'd be really entertaining to see me on roller skates, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, you thought it could never happen with a bicycle, and now look at you. Who knows? Maybe that'll be 2022. 2022, eh? No. Should we thank our guests? Thanks to Patrick Vernon, Sunder Katwala, and Diane Abbott, all of whom uh, I just thought were fantastic and, and what a great conversation that was. Emma Caution produces our podcast, uh, this series that we are in the middle of now. In fact, we've just passed the midway point. Um, First They Ignore You About Change is produced by Gareth Evans at 1860. Uh, It was supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed our music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. I noticed Joel Pierce has been dropped. I was just waiting for you to mention him. Our research used to be done by Joel Pierce. I'm trying to help you get closure. And our work used to be done by... Emily Power. I just feel you need to heal and move on, Ed. He's been the man from Haircut 100. He's been the man from Duckners. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>